0: people will ask me if I have particular members of the congregation in mind when I work on my sermons, and the answer to that is no, but with one exception, myself, and as as often is the case, uh, this sermon is for me, and uh, you're invited to listen in. We've been looking at the parables of Jesus and we come now to the end of those parables as we come to celebrate Palm Sunday and Easter. And as we do, we look at one of the parables that was told after Palm Sunday during Holy Week. There were just two or three of those and this is one of them. The occasion of it is a debate and dispute with Jesus and the religious leaders, as we have in the first eight verses of, or nine verses, eight verses of, of chapter 20. And it centers around this one question which they ask, it's listed in verse 2. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Jesus interacts with them briefly, and then tells them this parable. Beginning in verse 9, now this is God's Word. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully, and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others when the people heard this they said may this never be jesus looked directly at them and said this is what the meaning this is what is the meaning. Then what is the meaning of what is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he whom, on whom it falls will be crushed. And the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew they had spoken this parable against him, that he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Let us pray. O Lord, be our teacher and our guide, we ask, for you alone have the wisdom and the authority to interpret and apply your own word. As we come together today, we sit humbly beneath it and ask that you might use your spirit and that word to comfort, to disrupt, to chasten, to reconcile and to glorify the only Son of our Savior. Amen. The Bible has half a dozen, maybe a dozen, simple, distilled messages to give us. They are repeated and illustrated over and over and over again. But one of them, which touches this particular parable is the great teaching of our, the Apostle in 1 Corinthians when he says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The Scriptures, the Lord, who's the author of the Scriptures, want us to understand that foundational and fundamental thing. You are not your own. You were bought and paid for by the price of someone else. Your life, in other words, then, is not your own. You are not under your own authority. You don't have an obligation only to yourself. You are not in a position to direct and discover everything about your life on your own. You are under the watchful care and the sustaining hand and the precious blood of someone else. Oh, that I could understand this. Oh, that we could grasp this in a day-to-day and personal way. It's profoundly important. It has tremendous implications for us in our daily lives. And therefore, we simply must understand it. Now, this parable is not on the surface about that, and yet it is. This is one of those parables that seems to have two purposes. The preeminent purpose seems to be to describe to the religious leaders what is going on and what has gone on, to give them an entire course in Old Testament history and in a prediction about what is to happen within the week. Clearly in this parable, the messengers who come back from the absent owner are the prophets who are seeking to call Israel back to God from generations past. And he sends not one, but many to them. And they are all rejected. None are welcomed. And their message as well is defeated. But he continues to send them. And finally, in an increasing crescendo through John the Baptist, now to Jesus, we have the presentation of his son. Now, one of the things that strikes me as especially curious about this whole matter. Reading through the Gospels again this Easter season, doesn't it seem to you, doesn't it strike you that it's odd that they would want to kill Jesus? I mean, I know he was a rival. And I know they were jealous of him. And I know he was very impressive, and he made them look bad. And and I know that he had interpretations of the scriptures that they should have had because they were the teachers of the law. But the response of murder seems over the top, doesn't it? They want to kill him. And ever since, as it says in John 11, ever since the resurrection of Lazarus, they've been looking for a way to do it, probably before then. They've been looking for a way specifically not just to marginalize him, not to send him away, not to capture him, you know, like Joseph's brothers did and, and whisk him off somewhere else, but they wanted him to die. This is strong action. I mean, these men surely didn't plot the death of others. This was an unusual case, and they have responded with a visceral and strong and per. And pervasive anger against the Son. Isn't it striking that they would be men of peace and yet men of murder, men of the scriptures and yet so strongly reactive to the simple teachings of the Savior? He, he, He criticized them, but he never really went after them. He didn't threaten them in any way except in the heart the kind of threat that we feel when we know we're wrong. But he wasn't a physical threat to them. And yet they respond with death. And, and of course, this parable points it out. The prophets were at least allowed to live. None of them assassinated or killed. They were ill-treated, shamefully it says, but only Jesus was given this awful hatred. Here we have another parable that gives us common images of agriculture, and we can easily understand it. Uh, We don't have to be vineyard workers to to get the idea. The owner says, I'm leaving, I'm going to be gone a while, and I'm going to put you folks in charge. You're my tenants. You work for me, and now you're going to oversee things. But they get a taste of it that leads them to want to own it. They want to have it. Romans 8, verse 7 says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Now, this is probably a reference to the unbelieving mind, but here we see in the people who ought to have been believing, among the religious leaders, there is this hostility to the owner. They don't claim that he doesn't pay them enough, They don't claim that he is unfair and unjust in his treatment of them. What they want is what's his. They want to own it and they begin, it begins to dawn on them as they, as they have their little confabs too and, and confer with each other, it begins to dawn on them that they can have it because he's gone if they just simply could keep up this pattern of rejecting the messengers and finally, when the heir is on the scene, if we can eliminate the heir, then the inheritance is clouded and we can claim proper ownership of it all. So as I say, the tenants and the owner, the tenants work for the owner, but, and they are left in charge of the vineyard while the owner goes on a journey. And while he's gone, they must carry out his decisions. We are charged here, look at our own life a bit, look at my own life. You are not the owner. You have been bought with a price. The vineyard belongs to someone else. We are part of that vineyard. We are not our own. This week when Gail fell and broke her ankle, as many of you have heard, of course, a great deal of concern for her and uh, answered a lot of questions. This was Tuesday. By Thursday, I had made a mental sign to hang around my neck that I wanted to share with everyone who asked about her. And the question was simply this, what about me? (laughs) Right? What about me? (laughs) Exactly. And even this morning, already people inquiring, how's Gail, how's Gail, how's Gail? You know, and unnaturally so. But through it all, What about me? I'm reminded, painfully, starkly, dramatically, that I'm not my own. This is highly inconvenient to me and to her. This is not what we would have wanted or planned or wished for in any way. But if it is true, as we say, that we are not our own, we are bought with a price, then what am I crying about? What, what have I not received? I, I belong to someone else. I'm his to serve and to follow. And uh, derivatively, my wife and family. And so this is all a part of what I have painfully been reminded by even this week. The, own, the, the farmers want to be owners. The tenants want to take over, and so do we. The Bible says that you and I are repressing and denying something. Underneath all of our complicated feelings, the thing we find the hardest to admit is that we have an element of animosity and contempt for God. We are not indifferent toward Him, but there is a part, even of the Christian, the old man, the old nature, that is at enmity with Him, at opposition. And so I am, as much as I will admit it, resentful of these events. And I can't really blame her, and I wasn't there. So who's left? My heavenly Father. And I don't know if you feel this the uh, uh, conflict and tension, but often I do, not just in this instance, the tension a sort of seething, dare I say, contempt, animosity toward God who doesn't make things happen my way, who treats me as if I am His rather than He is mine, who treats me as His servant and follower and disciple and not His boss. The religious leaders are resentful of Jesus. And the people of Israel have been resentful of the Old Testament messengers who were sent to them, the prophets, when they were merely told what they had already been instructed and were reminded of what was so patently clear, that they were rebellious, stiff-necked, and turned away from God, and that they were not their own. He had purchased them out of slavery and brought them through the wilderness and into the promised land. He had been the one who had defeated their enemies and enabled the walls of Jericho to come down. He had been the one who, over the years, had been providing for them manna and everything that they needed, shoes that did not wear out. And yet, there was this element of resentfulness, this element of contempt, this element of resistance. I do not want to come under the yoke of someone else not even God and so the tenants rise up and what has been in their heart all along is revealed first in the shameful treatment of the messengers but then in the killing of the son the innocent he's been away too he hasn't harmed them He hasn't stolen from them. He hasn't in any way deserved this treatment. But they take his life. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And truth be told, if it were possible to remove God from the equation, I often would. I don't want the complication of his will intervening with my plans, my agenda, my goals, my ideas about what should happen. And so I'm in this struggle all the time because he won't leave me alone. He won't leave you alone. He will continue to challenge and remind and cajole and love you again and again and again. Well, when the people heard this, it says in verse 16, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and said, then what is the meaning of that which is written? This is deeply embedded into the whole Scriptures itself. Just as our rebellious nature is deeply embedded within our own heart and comes out from time to time, so in the same way, this truth is deeply embedded within the Scriptures. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. So Jesus speaks in this parable not only of the rejection of the prophets, but ultimately of the turning to the Gentiles and the nations that will happen in the New Testament time and continues to today. And those who rejected him were punished. So we are not our own. We are bought with a price. What does that look like? How do we live that way? Somehow in reading this week about General Eisenhower's life, I was struck by perhaps some comparisons. Not exactly a Biblical comparison, not exactly a fully scriptural or Christian one, but see if this doesn't help you. He graduated from West Point in 1915, and in the 30s, between the two world wars, he had made major. He was, had children, he had a wife, he was moved around the country from post to post, making about $5,000 a year. Committed to his calling as an army officer, but struggling at the same time. Some said there'd be another war, and of course they were right. But one couldn't be sure of that, and one doesn't eat and thrive on rumors and prospects. So on at least three occasions, he was offered another position. Representatives of the Hearst newspaper, looking for a military correspondent and hearing how well he wrote, offered him three to four times what he was making. Between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars a year. He was posted to the Philippines for part of that time, serving under General MacArthur, and interesting a Jewish community in Manila offered him to stay and serve with them sixty thousand dollars a year. Twelve times what he was making. And then he was also offered, as he was about to leave, to remain in the Philippine Army as an advisor. And the number wasn't given, but it was understood to be quite lucrative and his rank quite high. Why didn't he take it? Why didn't he fall prey to these offers? I mean, he had to care for his family, and promotion in the army in those days was very slow. He was languishing, making $5,000 a year with children and a wife, and dragging them all around the world in the service of his country. But to hear it written and, and told, he he had a sense of calling. He, he felt like he had an obligation and a sense of duty to that calling. And so he turned down the other offers. Now, that is not the same thing as Christian commitment. But there are parallels. We have a calling to serve him. And we receive many offers. Offers to deny him, offers to reject him, offers to try to take back our lives as if that was possible. Many attractive offers are there. Offers to sin, to fall. What should we do? What can we do except to remain faithful to what seems to be, at the time, far less. Far less. We have obligations. We have interests. We, have, we could have a wider prospect, but... We know we can't. In the same way, when we recognize that we are bought with a price, we are not free to accept just any offer. Not even the offer to ourselves be placed upon the throne of our lives. We are not free. We are, in one sense, bound and obligated, no matter how attractive the offer, to stick with the one who loved us who sent those messengers time after time after time, and who nourished us in our hours of need and walked with us through the valley of the shadow of death through many occasions, who sustained us and showed us his love for us again and again and again and again, and and in so doing has won our hearts in spite of our wayward thoughts. So we're stewards. And we should say something like this. I don't necessarily need this thing that I want if God isn't going to give it to me. Don't say I've decided that I must have it because I want to run my own life and God is warning me through messengers. Instead say, I will listen and I will give God the wheel. And with apologies to Carrie Underwood, Jesus' Take the Wheel came to me late in the week as a possible title. Not because of the song, but because of the essence of this parable. It's about authority. Verse 2. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? I was given it by my father, he says, by telling this story. Let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they discuss these things, and then Jesus tells them the story. Perhaps he is sending messengers to you. Through his scripture, through his people, through various means, God gets in touch with us. The phone rings both ways. He calls. He comes. He challenges. How are you treating those messengers? Rejection? Think about it later? Don't want to hear it? Or are you willing to listen? Willing to hear from the Son? And as we conclude, let us remember... These messages are coming from one who has desperately loved us, who has shown us again and again and again and again that he cares, who has given us the gift of salvation and eternal life which can never be lost, and in the end gave us the price of his own son. The cost of it was enormous. Therefore, We don't belong to ourselves anymore. You're a Christian. You have something to answer for. Not for your salvation, because that has been purchased. But you and I must answer for our responses to his claims upon all of our lives. His clutches go deep. His hands sometimes seem rough and unpleasant, and gripping. But His grace is sufficient. Three times Paul asks for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. Three times the answer is no. And Paul says, in effect, if it was up to me, I'd be free of it. And God says, it's not up to you. It's up to me. This is very freeing, by the way. It may sound like I'm giving you a recruitment uh, speech. Come on, join God's army. And you say, oh no, I don't want to be a part of that. This is very freeing. This is good news. That someone would love us this much to lay claim upon our life and show an interest in us that's abiding and want to work with us and make something of us that we are not by ourselves. This is good news. This is true love. This is real interest. We've all benefited from time to time from a teacher or a coach or a superior who gave us the kind of encouragement that we needed, who who pushed us, who, who changed and molded our lives to some extent so that we were forever changed. We owe a debt to those people. How much greater is our debt to the Savior who gave himself And lays claim upon us in a way that only benefits us. Now, you could argue in the parable that the inheritance is really what this is about, but it's not, it's about authority. Who's going to rule the vineyard? The owner comes back and exercises his authority and defeats all of his enemies after they take his son. So, my friends, I'm just about finished preaching to myself and saying, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. Therefore, serve God with your body. Let us pray. We have many loyalties, Lord, and we feel divided from time to time. As you know, we are often tempted by the work of the devil and the many schemes that he invents. And we also are susceptible to pride and selfishness at a very deep level. And in this deep level, we struggle. We, we do not want to surrender authority to you. We do not want to give you the place that you have well deserved as the owner of the vineyard and the sender of the messengers. We thank you for your patience. We thank you that you didn't send just one messenger or two, but you repeatedly have appealed to us and to your people over the centuries, not leaving us alone as we deserved to our own meager devices, but you have raised up again and again someone to come to speak the word of truth to your people and, in fact, also to us. How we thank you, Lord, that you are long-suffering and merciful and that you don't give up on us when we so foolishly turn away. We remind us, as you have reminded me this week, Lord, that we are not our own. We are not in control. We do not have the prerogative of setting the agenda. We have been bought and paid for with a loving and gracious price not of a slave master, but of a Lord and Savior. And we now belong to Him. We now answer to Him and Him alone. And we thank you that this is so freeing, that it sets us free from self and sin and pride, and that it gives us a way out of the small world we create for ourselves that is only about us. It opens our eyes to your work around the world to reconciliation with our neighbors, to all kinds of opportunities for service. Thank you. And thank you, too, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to be so mistreated, so hated and reviled, that they even took your life. Guide us this Easter week, we pray, in a deeper appreciation of all that you've done for us. Through Christ our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Amen.